Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Crux. Hello, Mike. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, Also here with us is our graduate assistant, Haley McKee. Haley, how are you? Hello, I'm doing well. How are y'all? Good, good. We're going to hear from Haley in a little bit. But first, the news, as they say. Mike, I wanted to start off with some positive news. We've seen this advance pretty quickly with these vaccines for COVID. Pfizer, Moderna, who have both announced uh, these high effective... Over 90... 94, yeah, 94%. So obviously this is fantastic news and offers us hope we're going to get back to quote unquote normal at some point in the future. It really, both vaccines are great achievements scientifically. And what's also impressed me, Mike, is the communications surrounding them. And for example, when Moderna announced its preliminary phase three trial results, the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bora, I think that's how you say it, yep, and, yep. and and Pfizer publicly congratulated their competitors. Yeah, absolutely. Quote, our companies share a common goal, defeating this dreaded disease, and today we congratulate everyone at Moderna and share in the joy of their encouraging results. Well, that's great. So, look, this is an industry with one of the most intensive, you know, (laughs) intense competition that there is out there, just fierce competition, collaborative partnerships, data sharing initiatives, and science-based messaging and public communications have replaced that, at least for now. And the pharma industry at large seems to be placing purpose over competition. And I think that's that's really refreshing also because uh, this is an industry that's been plagued with a very, very low sort of trust and reputation score because of what is perceived to be the high cost of its products and sometimes heavy-handed marketing. In fact, I, I think we've mentioned this on the show a couple of times, Mike, that in a Gallup poll, the pharma industry had the lowest industry score ever of approval rating. So what do you think of this? Do you think this is just a circumstantial trend related to COVID or something more permanent we're going to see both in this industry and more broadly? Well, you know, as they say in the news business, OTWT, only time will tell, yeah. you know, if this is truly transformative. I do think, though, the, the, the moment really did help a much disparaged industry mm-hmm. and helped to promote its value in, in compelling ways. And, and it even stretched beyond this exercise of the salute from opposing CEOs, <laughs> you know, as, as, as they announced their breakthroughs. And it also was important in ways that I think were not only compelling, not only valued, but the general public could understand what the challenge was, Mm -hmm, right? Exactly. And to the general public, it mattered. It truly mattered. I also was very, very impressed in the mix of all that led up to the events of recent weeks is the what I think was a brilliant campaign by Pfizer that started back in April with a tagline, science will win. Mm-hmm. 
you know, as the COVID-19 cases were climbing, as we began to see more talking heads on television, from politicians to celebrities, you know, talking about the, the pandemic and what was taking, taking hold, is Pfizer went ahead, changed out much of its product advertising, and put forward a simple, powerful message. And, and, and some time ago, I, I wrote it down, because what the narrator says on camera is they're showing you images of people working in labs and whatnot. They say, at a time when things are most uncertain, we turn to the most certain thing there is, science. Mm -hmm. Science great. can overcome diseases, create cures, and yes, beat pandemics. It has before, it will again. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of work, I mean, it's inspirational. And, and it clearly played off of the fact that even back in April, we were beginning to grow tired of the politicians and the celebrities. And this is a kind of, I think it should also be a broader reminder to all of us in communications that especially in challenging times, it's the simplest most direct messages are often the most effective. Right. And and returning to some tried and true sort of messaging, I think we sometimes think everything has to be new. Mm -hmm. and, and this is just who Pfizer is at its yeah. core, right? I'm I'm with you. I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic. And I also like the way the pharma companies have sort of hung together. Yeah, uh, to do this counter messaging. They've yeah. all all said throughout all of this, to your point, that science ultimately yeah. would and, win yeah. out. Yeah, yeah, and a special shout out to the people at at Pfizer because I really think that they did a phenomenal job, and I'm thrilled to see not only them and Moderna, but other companies yep. coming forward too, and almost locked arm in arm that this is this is an important issue, and we're going to address it. And more work to do, Mike, too. You remember our, our guest last week, Vivian Schiller from Aspen, talking about uh, their next focus being on helping people understand why the vaccine is a good thing and yeah. trying to trying to knock down some of this disinformation that we see from anti-vaxxers about other vaccines that unfortunately may affect, affect this one. All right. So yeah. now I want to move on to another topic that's a favorite of mine. Which is marketing language. <laughs> so yeah, 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 exactly. I, look, it's a fun one. I really, I have great respect for marketers. It's a very difficult job and one that's changing rapidly. You and I have both worked with a lot of marketers, and there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of distinction between the two communications and marketing functions. One of the most noteworthy is the marketing language that is used prominently today in the industry is something that's getting attention. The New York Times recently published an article called Thumb Stopping, Humaning, mm -hmm. B4H, The Strange Language of Modern Marketing. And as you can tell from the title, it delves into the linguistic terms frequently used in the marketing industry and questions whether, quote unquote, it's enough already. And I, I think you may know my answer to that question or <laughs> no, <laughs> no, some of the folks who know my uh, run-ins with marketing over the years, but it details how Mondelez, great company, partnered with Ogilvy, a great agency, to create a campaign on humaning. And that's the word human with I-N-G on the end, mm -hmm. resulting in some social media 
criticism, you know, that why create these fake words if it, if this is about authenticity and, and people? Mondelez describes humaning as a unique consumer-centric approach to markets that create real human connections with purpose. We are no longer marketing to consumers, but creating connections with consumers. So that's where Mondelez comes from. More broadly, beyond just that term, critics say that marketing lingo has, quote unquote, run amok, twisting language into new shapes with a certain goal in mind, persuading you to buy things, quote unquote. The article goes on to provide other Of course, examples. that's their job, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and twisting language. So in an era where we talk about authenticity, Mike, in every other sentence yeah. um, in communications, is this a big deal or is this just a humorous story about, you know, every industry has its jargon, right? Mm-hmm. Every profession yeah. has a jargon. We have it in, yeah. in PR and in, et cetera. But the Times thought it was enough to do a big piece on the front page of the business section. What do you think? Well, first of all, you may be surprised as someone who's a vociferous reader, someone <laughs> who loves to write. I may take a slight counter position to where you would okay. go. Because, you know, what some marketers would say is that because we're talking about it, guess what? It worked. Yeah. What some may not know is that there are already some words that we accept in the daily vernacular that were actually coined by marketers. So back in 1914, there was a great ad guy by the name of Theodore McManus, and he was doing some work for his client, the automaker Dodge. And he took note of the fact that the research that they had pulled together said that Dodge owners were thrilled that their cars did not break down as often as the Ford Model Ts of that day. And he coined a word that couldn't be found in the dictionary (laughs) at the time. It was called dependability. (laughs) Is that right? That's that's exactly right. Then then something that you know that we would more relate to back in 1990 there was a very very popular us ad campaign that was the result of a made up word that word was farfernugen uh, and, and yes, it was used yes. by vw it had german roots and was intended to mean driving enjoyment as right. they would yes. express it in the ads but the term itself didn't really exist even yes. in German. So that ad campaign was very successful. I must confess, though, I was a little taken aback with the term thumb stopping. It sort of <laughs> stopped me in my tracks. I looked it up to find out that it is about online mobile content that captures someone's attention enough to stop them from scrolling with their thumb. Yeah, swipe right. Kind of no clever. more swipe yeah. right. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. in that but sense. True confessions. When I first saw the word thumb stopping, I had it had me thinking about a popular drinking song from the 1990s. There was a group called Chumbawamba. Oh, and the yeah. song was tub thumping. Yeah. And, and its refrain is probably what marketers would say anytime there is criticism from literacy geeks or, or, you know, dictionary snobs. And the refrain is, I get knocked down, but I get yeah. up again. You're never going to keep me Come on, down. Mike, sing. Sing, Mike. Now, now, now what I want to do, what I want to do, Gary, is ask you, where were you on the debate at GE around 
Echo Imagination. Yeah, so I come from a company we created. We created Healthy Imagination, a bunch of other yeah. ones. Yeah. I thought Eco Imagination was genius. It was a campaign that had real meat to it, Mike. I thought and it was different than anybody had done before. And so why not a different word? I think this is overdone. You know, <laughs> I've had my run, I've had my run-ins with marketers before, particularly over budget. I've run marketing before. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> over budget. But I see and I, I give Mondelez credit here, and I'm gonna forget his name, the CMO of Mondelez International is, you know, he's standing by it and the humaning thing. Mm -hmm. And then he says what's important is is what it inspires inside the company and among his team. So I did some digging. And for example, what they mean by this humaning is Oreo, which is, of course, their most famous product at Mondelez, which I love Oreos. It's just, it, it's just, it's a sickness. But Oreos, they have a proud parent program, right? Mm -hmm. Where they connect with parents of children who love Oreos and help them. They have in the UK... Cadbury Dairy Milk has a donate your words campaign to combat loneliness among the elderly, right? Oh, cool. So I'm usually, you know, give me a chance to punch a marketer in the nose, I'll do it. <laughs> but I think this is just, let's look what's underneath it. There was a lot of substance. It's nice to see your human inside. <laughs> yeah, not my pugilistic side. And there was a lot underneath, there was a lot of substance beneath eco-imagination. And it, it appears to me that there's a lot of substance underneath humaning. So I'm going to go, I'm going to be on the marketing side of the field on this one. So there you go. People are probably surprised that we both ended up there. Exactly. So, all right, last, last topic before we get to Haley. Mike, look, we're living in a world where uppercase letters, you know, uppercase <laughs> you know, tweets are no longer de rigueur. I mean, not no longer the normal thing. And I just want to say, I want to talk about the presidential transition and the communication surrounding President-elect Joe Biden's cabinet. And also the announcement this week, by the way, that the communications team led by Jen Psaki as White House Press Secretary and Kate Benningfield as Communications Director. It's all women communications team, which I think is fantastic. First time ever. But I have been impressed over the past few weeks as we saw the Biden team get announced. Anthony Blinken, John Kerry, Jake Sullivan, Janet Yellen, Linda Thomas-Greenfield to these high-level positions in the cabinet on how carefully the communications were crafted. They released a video describing the appointments the appointees themselves, the you know social media accounts of Kerry, Blinken, Sullivan, all referred to how they would serve and get America back on track. Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas and Thomas Greenfield each held press conferences explaining not only what they plan to do as part of Biden's cabinets, but also how their individual experiences can help strengthen America's standing. So I was just like, this was normal and coordinated very well. And as soon as these people were appointed, named by President-elect Biden, these folks tweeted out how proud they were to serve normal tweets, lowercase letters, coordinated, thoughtful, all of that. And, and it just really felt like we had gone back in time. So I was really impressed by it. And I wanted to get your take on it. And do you think there really can be, after what we've gone through in the past four years, a return to normalcy in communications at a national political level. 
I'm going to answer it yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for, first of all, I think the the messaging set up here is terrific. Biden sending a message that experience matters, diversity matters. Most of the players on the team have worked in Washington before. They're stable. There's no strong shifts left or right. It's competency over catechism. And the faces and personal stories are, are more in line with America and an America that is increasingly diverse, right? Yep, so absolutely. overall, I give Joe Biden an A in how he's rolling out his team. Mm -hmm. The way in which it was done, well, I, th I think was probably constrained, mm -hmm. you know, by the pandemic and no doubt the, the White House's lack of cooperation in recent weeks. But the messaging, you're right. It may have been actually the best ever, at least the best I, I can ever remember. So very, very strong. I think we will see some normalcy. I think we will see a return to White House briefings. I think we'll see a return to a, a better cadence and rhythm in terms mm -hmm. of talking to the American public. All that said, the pathway ahead will not be easy. In what you, way, Mike? Well, 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 you and I have talked about before. I mean, the U.S. remains a very divided country. Biden will have to contend with some on the left who want proof that victory matters. Mm -hmm. And there will be some in the middle and to the right that want to hold him, you know, to his pledge to heal the nation, bring the Moderate, country together. Yeah. Both houses of Congress are going to be more divided than they were before. That's the, right. the votes are going to be lots split closer. down the middle. So the ability to drive consensus is it, it's going to be a bear. It's going yeah. to be a bear. It is. It is. And and to your point on the messaging here on the rollout, it is so important just to understand why you were elected. Right? Why yeah. were you elected, and what are people in the country seeking? And it is this sense of normalcy. In, in a pandemic and in a tumultuous four years. And the idea that we're going back to something that is boring, <laughs> you know, boring is good, right? And, yeah. and some of this was, was, you know, expected and boring. And I just want to say also, I think the selections individually have been fantastic. Oh, I worked stellar. with Jen Psaki when my boss, Jeff Immelt, was mm -hmm. the head of Obama's jobs council. And she's just fantastic. She had the podium job, I believe, at state for a time during the Obama administration, just a real pro and, and somebody that will bring truth, I am sure, back to that briefing room. So all around, I give them, I'm with you. I'm gonna I'm gonna give him an A plus, Mike, because uh, and I just want to one up you just for no reason <laughs> at all. Okay, we now. don't give A pluses at Boston University. <laughs> yeah, that's right, we don't. <laughs> now you know I'll give you a little a peek behind the scenes here at the crux. You know, Mike and I bounce around stories during the week. You know, on what we want to talk about during the news, and we settle on on those that you hear after some debate. But this week, Haley chimed in with I, what I think is a really interesting story about brands. And well, I'll let her tell it. Haley, why don't you tell us about, about the story that made news this week? Sure. So we mentioned earlier that almost every industry or every company has its own lingo or word. And I have another one for y'all, and it is Zillennial. And that would be me, I guess. I'm a combination between Gen Z and Millennial. 
And just like every other Zillennial in quarantine, I have spent a lot of time on TikTok. <laughs> do you do dancing and all that? I'm more, you know, a silent observer is what uh, I would tell myself. I don't think the world's ready for that yet. <laughs> but if you've scrolled down any For You page on TikTok, you have probably seen these viral videos of someone dropping a few colored drops into a can. A lid goes on and it just spins and spins and reveals a color that you probably wouldn't expect. And these things went viral. So these TikToks are the brainchild of a college student and a Sherwin-Williams employee named Tony Pilicino. And he used these videos specifically as a part of a digital marketing pitch to make the brand appeal to all the younger audiences that are on TikTok. But Tony's pitch and his then 1.2 million followers did not fare well with Sherwin-Williams. The company actually fired him for misconduct, wasting facilities on the clock, and embarrassing the company or its products. But the story does have a happy ending. Just last week, Tony accepted a new job with Florida Paints, which is a really small company that yeah, yeah. promised to look into his creativity and his influencer brand over other offers that he received from giant brands in the paint space. So my questions to you, Professor Sheffer and Professor Fernandez, what is your take on Sherwin-Williams handling of this situation? And what does this even say more broadly about new media and communications? Let me answer first real quickly and I'll let Mike go. I knew we would find a way to make villains out of the marketers today, because I'm sure it was probably the marketers who, who fired him. Not on message. Exactly. I, I don't know, Haley, why it sounds like they reached the conclusion that he was acting outside of his responsibilities, which, you know, a legitimate, you know, point of view. But goodness gracious, I, you know, I, I think it's a, it sounds like a generational thing in an industry where creativity has not been the trademark of the paint industry. Let's put it that way, right? And this young person found a way to be creative and connect with his generation. So I would classify it as an overreaction. Again, I don't know the internal story at Sherwin-Williams with good company, sounds like, but man, it's like snatching defeat from the jaws of victory in my <laughs> point of view. Well, and I would tag onto that. I mean, I think what we don't know from what we have of the story is what the person's job performance was actually like outside of this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. How much time this was taking and was it getting in the way of him actually performing the duties he was hired to do? All of that said, I think also a lot of mature companies that aren't sort of with it have a tendency sometimes to think that they can control what happens on social media. And yet at the same time, they want to make employees ambassadors of the company. Exactly. And those two things are kind of at odds. If, you're, if you truly want employees to share their experience with the company and speak highly of the company and be creative and be innovative, you've got to take the gloves off mm -hmm. and you, you got to let them you know, shine. Yeah. And there certainly was nothing offensive about this campaign. Now, Haley, I wonder if you bring this up because you had a personal experience. Now, Haley is one of the architects of Boston University's wildly successful F it won't cut it campaign about 
Uh, Notice he to, didn't say the word. Yeah, you know, it's like my, my <laughs> wife's in the next room. So, um, but so did you run into it? Very successful about staying safe on campus during this pandemic. I'm sure there were people who said, well, wait a minute, we can't do that, young people, right? Ultimately, I give BU credit, the campaign went forward. But did you experience some of that as well? Absolutely. I think a lot of that definitely did come in at the very, very beginning when we first launched. And of course, when you say a phrase like, F it won't cut it, you don't really know what it means if that's the first time you've heard it. What is this relating to? What exactly are we getting behind? So a lot of people were saying, what's the need for this strong language and what is it used for? But of course, as we've started to become a really helpful resource that talks about mental health and, you know, drinking as a college student of age, these things are really useful and those things aren't talked about. So now that people have seen that we're not afraid to talk about those seemingly taboo topics, we have a little bit less of that dissent, but it definitely still exists from people who might be a little hesitant to kind of break the mold. Right. Well, you know what my lesson is, Haley, is that the more I see young people and how smart they are and how good they are, I think it's just time for guys like Mike and I to get out of the way. And and <laughs> thanks, Haley. And now let's go to our guest, Stephanie Johnson. Today is Associate Professor of Organizational Leadership and Information Analytics at University of Colorado's Lead School Business and the author of best-selling book, business book, Inclusify. Her work has centered on the intersection of leadership and diversity, focusing on overcoming unconscious bias and building more diverse and inclusive workplaces. She's published a lot of different articles and journals and done book chapters and everything from Harvard Business Review to the Academy of Management Journal. She's presented her work at meetings all over the world. She participated at the 2016 White House Summit on Diversity which was built around National Equal Pay Day. I had the pleasure of, of hearing her speak at Nudge Fest 2019 in the United Kingdom. She's appeared on multiple news programs. Her work's been featured in The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Washington post. She has an extensive consulting experience as well and has created and delivered leadership development training with an emphasis on evidence-based practice. It is our honor to have with us on The Crux today, Stephanie K. Johnson. Welcome to The Crux, Stephanie. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the very thorough and kind introduction. <laughs> yeah, that, that went on a long time, Stephanie. <laughs> We're done, though. Now, you operate in the field of organizational psychology, and you consult and coach a number of of, of companies. And I should tell our listeners, you're also on Marshall Goldsmith's list of top 100 business coaches. What's the primary reason that clients and CEOs are coming to you for advice? Is it they have a sense that something is not right, something's not working, or are they simply looking for an edge, or perhaps are they just looking for ways to give the issue some lip service and just move on? 
you know, probably a little bit of all of that. I would say maybe at least if someone's going to come ask me for my advice, I don't think they're going, they're paying lip service. They might as well go with, you know, a very well-known firm <laughs> if they, if that's what they want to do so they can put that on their website somewhere. But, you know, I think sometimes it's a realization that their employment practices aren't going as well as they thought. Maybe they realize they have higher turnover among certain groups or just, you know, I'll say recently with the murder of George Floyd in the U.S. and Breonna Taylor and many, many others, I think there's a lot of organizational leaders who have had this awakening of something's wrong. And I, you know, maybe I didn't care about it before. Mm -hmm. Maybe I wasn't aware of it before but it seems that this has really impacted the hearts and minds of so many leaders, business leaders and otherwise. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've seen business leaders literally react in a much different way as a result of, of those events. I also think it's interesting, you wrote this book ahead of those events and yet it got published after. It, that has to be kind of interesting in terms of looking at how people are reacting to one another. You put Inclusify out on the market and, and Inclusify to me is, is, is a very intriguing book, not just because it's a best-selling business book and was on Wall Street Journal's list, but more because of what it says about us as human beings, right? I mean, you, you talk about two basic human desires. One's that desire to fit in, and then that other is that desire to stand out. How do managers, how do leaders, how do organizations kind of balance all of this out and still do so with that broader sensitivity to what's happening in the world that's changing right before us? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the biggest step is starting to work on our individual empathy and understanding. Mm. And maybe it's critical conversations or doing fireside chats or just some way for people to get some data if it's, you know, stories of how people are being impacted. I think that you talked about the two basic and essential human needs, you know, to stand out and to fit in uniqueness and belonging. And for so many, I'd say majority group members, that's really easy because Mm -hmm. your primary identity is consistent with everyone else in the organization. And so you don't need to change the way you are in order to fit in. And as a result, I think for those folks, it's really hard to understand why everyone wouldn't mm-hmm. just naturally feel included all the time. Yeah. Except my rare exception is leaders who have taken expat assignments and <laughs> gone from like the, the majority. From being in the majority to being yeah. in the minority. Exactly. Yeah. And exactly. that, I mean, that causes a huge change in their worldview of it's empathy. It's increased empathy because experiencing it firsthand lets you know how other people feel. That, that is so right, Stephanie. By the way, welcome and, and glad to have you on the crux. I worked at a big company, GE, and the expat experience, it's exactly how people felt. They would come back and talk about going from the majority to the minority and how it just flips their worldview completely and how they felt like better leaders when they got back to their native country. So uh, I hadn't thought about it in that sense, but that's so true. So look, I, Mike and I have both worked in the corporate world and participated in discussions about diversity and inclusion. 
in our industry, in the communications industry. I'm curious, given all your work in this area, are there companies who are getting it right? And more importantly, what does right look like today? Yeah, you know, there are for sure. It's always hard to name specific companies yeah, yeah. because, and I, I will, but because like in the book, I talk about Starbucks as one of my just really ideal companies when it comes to diversity and inclusion, because it's really part of their brand, yeah. right? Is you want to bring people together and, and I think they really live that. But even the best companies, they're going to have these, you know, media <laughs> communications. Stub their toe, right? Yeah. yeah. It happens when you have, you know, thousands, if not millions of employees, eventually someone's going to do something that's going to get you in the news. But, you know, I think Starbucks is a good example. Salesforce, they do a ton around this. So Let me press you on the second half of my question. What yeah. is, you, when you say they do good things, what is it compensating leaders basing pay you know pay on some of these metrics related to diversity etc what give me an example of what what good is yeah so i would start with as an organization your top leadership team should reflect society and yep. if it doesn't yet then you should be setting goals to do that which is something that starbucks did for example set goals to increase diversity on their board and they have done so Tying executive compensation to diversity and inclusion, again, something that Starbucks just recently did. And then if you follow that logic forward, it's like setting some specific goals for increasing diversity throughout the organization, really making diversity and inclusion part of the mission, vision, values, like the very core of the companies. And I think Starbucks CEO said like the fabric of the organization. Right. I think that that's good. I mean, there's... There's all many layers below that where companies are doing things that are are working. Leader development programs specifically targeted at women and women of color and people of color, mentoring programs, sponsorship programs, stuff like that. I think all of those are they're good. They're they're not at the same level as right. really living it. Talking to a friend recently about this subject, not making excuses. Companies aren't making excuses for not taking action. I think it was uh, Charles Schwab, CEO, you know, good company saying, look, there's not a pipeline uh, of talent. And, oh, that was, that was Wells Fargo. Was it Wells Fargo? Yeah, there yeah. you go. Mashing it all together. And uh, this friend I was talking to, who's a black woman, was just so, uh, you know, offended by that, that there is a talent. It's an excuse among some companies to blame the pipeline rather than their own actions. And, and I assume that's something you don't see at places like Starbucks and elsewhere, because there certainly is a pipeline there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, if this were any other area of business, if you were trying to say, expand your social marketing presence, you would look at what other companies have, right? You look at what others are doing, yep. what are the success points? And I think we don't really do that when it comes to diversity, but if they did that, if they went and did some benchmarking, they would see, you know, some of their very near competitors have been able to hire and promote and retain greater diversity. So there must be some kind of pipeline if it, exactly if they're it, not going has, there. Right. It might, there must be a reason. <laughs> so what are the other solutions you talk about in your book is unconscious bias training. Now, tell me if I'm getting this right about unconscious bias. I saw Mike at the seminar a few years ago, an author, and I'm going to forget his name, 
talking about unconscious bias. And he opened the presentation by talking about, I think he was in Hawaii, and he went for a swim in the ocean. The first half of the swim, he was feeling great. You know, he was felt strong. And he says, you know, I must be really in great shape. I am just like so powerful in the water today. I didn't realize this. Then he turned around to swim back to shore and he realized he had been swimming with the tide, right? <laughs> and it took everything that he need, he had in him, every ounce of energy to get back to shore. And, and he used as an example of unconscious bias that just he presumed something was true because of the situation around him and what he was experiencing. So I always remember that when I hear this, that story, when I hear this topic, we all have biases, right? Stephanie, of one kind or another, we, we should recognize that. But what does the recognition of unconscious biases really, why does it really matter to leaders and companies? So I love that example. I've, I think I've done that same thing on a paddleboard. That's <laughs> 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 so relaxing. Yeah, totally, yeah. To me, I think that almost seems like a better analogy of like maybe privilege, you know? Yeah, 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 it could be, could be. Yes, I see it. That's where I, I kind of thought you were going with that. But for me, unconscious bias is just the idea that we have these paired associations. Like if you think of a nurse, I think most people think of a woman. If you think of a teacher, most people think of a woman. If you think of a surgeon, people think of a man, right? It's yep, just like, exactly they are based on statistics. Usually most nurses are actually women and most surgeons are actually men, but the impact becomes when you encounter a woman in scrubs and you say, nurse, can you please get my surgeon? And she's your surgeon, mm -hmm. right? Those very consistent, maybe you know, some people call them microaggressions. They really impact the way people think and feel in the workplace. And that's one, I guess that would be based on a customer. <laughs> so how do you train yeah. people about this, Stephanie? What's, what, what do you do? What does good unconscious bias training look like? It's actually pretty complicated. So if you- Is if you that read, right? the literature on it. We do a lot of really bad unconscious bias training <laughs> to, in many cases, unconscious bias training actually has a negative impact on women of color and the organization. So it can elicit stereotypes because a lot of uh, unconscious bias training makes uh, you aware right. of stereotypes and actually can make those stereotypes more salient. Like, yeah. oh, I didn't know women were supposed to be bad drivers, but now I'm really noticing that <laughs> as I drive around. And so that can be problematic. It can also create a lot of backlash mm -hmm. because we all have, we all have our identity and ego. And if you sit there and tell me you are a biased, racist, sexist person, I think if you're a human being, that feels pretty bad. And depending on how it's delivered, it can create backlash among majority group members. So there's actually a fair amount of risk to doing it if it's not done correctly. And there, there's right. good research to show that, you know, the way you deliver it is important. I personally honestly don't think unconscious bias training is as useful as solutions. So in, like, if, I'll say if I work with an organization and this isn't like a plug, but to do yeah. unconscious bias training, the beginning is like, yes, we have unconscious biases. You know, think of a nurse, think of a surgeon, that's your unconscious right. bias. Yep. If you think of a rock star, it's just like Steven Tyler. And obviously there's other rock stars that are women and women of color and people of color, but that's just like, those are the images that we hold. 
but that's really not the point of the training. The point of the training is now that you're aware that you have these, it doesn't mean that doesn't matter, but it's like, we need to find ways to change systems so that you don't allow those biases to impact your decisions and the content of the bias. I don't really care. Exactly. Yeah. If the solution works, it'll work. Yeah. Right. But but to that point, I I mean, I think in a lot in, in unconscious biases, sometimes it's fed by our own experience. And it's like, if, if someone went to my alma mater and I've got three candidates and they're otherwise equal, there might be a sense that, you know, this person's traffic more of the terrain that I have. So I can trust that a little bit better. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we all do that. So some of these things are pretty harmless in one sense, but they can really undermine good decision-making. That's right. Yeah. Because if they went to your alma mater, they probably share other characteristics with you and maybe that's which may not be good (laughs) (laughs) i vote for that yeah it's certainly not good for diversity because right right diversity of academic institution positively predicts performance so like among venture capital firms which are very frequently formed from groups of students who graduated from the same university those firms actually perform worse when they are all from people who so it's like lower diversity you had fewer different perspectives so you would actually want to someone who didn't go to your university but I always say this like I have a a mentee right a protege she is a Mexican female and kind of first generation college student I am a Mexican female first generation college student and it's like I don't know why I just like her so much. <laughs> she reminds me of someone. And- someone very close to me. <laughs> well, what's interesting to me is 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 one of the one of the things, and I think it's in the book. You reference that inside companies, and again, it's not one of these conscious things, but women and minorities are not always given the plum assignments. You know those that. Are, are, are given as kind of opportunities to truly, you know, stretch your stuff, right? Yeah. And, and, and I think you refer to these as promotable tasks. Yeah, yeah. That's Can right. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I think that's one of, so this is more, I'll say, if I was doing unconscious bias training, the things, the awareness for me is really about stuff like that. Like you don't, we don't realize all the ways mm-hmm. that biases might, impact behavior. So like mentoring, you're going to mentor someone who looks like you or the distribution of tasks. And there's like very consistent data showing that particularly women of color end up with a lot of that we call them office housework tasks, like (laughs) reading over someone else's PowerPoint or literally off like housework, like cleaning up after parties or taking notes during meetings. And all of these tasks take away from your total amount of time, but realistically no one ever gets promoted for like, man, she's so good at reading PowerPoints and gives me really good details (laughs) on my reports. And then there's really great tasks that, you know, maybe they're the riskier assignment that has a lot of potential for wins or losses. We tend to go in those cases with the person who feels safest, and that's going to be whoever's the most typical. And then to add to that, oftentimes, this is one of the kind of surprises that came out of the research for the book, there's a lot of really so like champions for diversity that are often white males who are trying to promote and ends up being protect women. Mm-hmm. And so they don't give them those, maybe it's the expat assignment mm-hmm. in a really tough environment or a client everyone knows is, you know, 
a very good potential client, but it's really hard on people. And so in an effort to take care of or protect women, they don't get those assignments. And I've even heard of, I mean, so consistently customer preference, Hmm. like, well, this firm (laughs) is going to feel more comfortable with this type of employee. And it, it seems like natural. Of course, this is what our customer preferred. It's also totally illegal, at least in the U S to like make decisions around race and gender because of customer preference. Like that's Mm -hmm. your customer's wrong. It doesn't matter. Yeah. That's their preference. In all of those ways, what we see is like those promotable tasks end up going to one group over another. And then when it comes to the pipeline issue, Gary, <laughs> then you're like, well, who has these yes. really huge challenges, maybe even failures? Like they yeah. took a risk and lost and learned a ton. And we basically build the pipeline in a way that is inequitable. Stephanie, I can tell you this happens in big corporations too. I ran a big communications team and I would talk to leaders in, you know, GE's various, a multi-business company and say, Hey, I want to take this person that's on your communications team and move them here to give her a growth opportunity. And those leaders would come back and say, you know, you're not taking her. She's my PowerPoint person. Exactly. She does all my PowerPoints for me. I cannot afford to lose her. (laughs) And that, I mean, think about it from that person's perspective of like, do I want to live the rest of my career? Exactly. Exactly. It's dangerous to be good at that because it is an important (laughs) skill. (laughs) Now, now one of the things that has happened since this summer is it seems like a lot of different companies have now appointed these chief diversity officers. One, I want to know your sense of, is this a good idea? But what does the the remit of these new roles look like? And do they really have the ability to prompt change? It just, to, to me, it's, it, it's like, it's like some years ago, if you were in a large global company or you're trying to make the case that you were a global company, you might have somebody in charge of global business development. And it actually kind of signaled to the outside world that you weren't truly global. I'm just sort of curious as to this <laughs> phenomena. Is this, is this, from your perspective, working with a lot of companies and working in this space, is this a good thing? And if it's a good thing, what does it really need to be in order to be good? Yeah, I'll give you a wishy-washy answer. I'll say, you know, I think it depends. So uh-huh. I I think being a chief diversity officer, I mean, it's really a full-time job. It is, sure. it's a lot of work. It's not an HR task. It's, you know, this really requires, it's like a, a person to run this operation. And so I think it's useful to have a chief diversity officer. At the same time, I'd say, I think this, I always say this to CEO, the CEO has to be the chief diversity officer. Mm. Right. You can hire a second chief diversity officer with that title, but if you're if the CEO is not behind the diversity initiatives, mm-hmm. it's really not going to happen, right? Or if the board, I, I suppose, if the board's yeah. behind it, we can make it happen. But you really need someone who's going to be driving this, and more often than not, I think it's the CEO or the board. So when I see companies right now, I've been tracking all the companies' responses since George Floyd about 260 of the Fortune 500 have come out with statements and some have done actions. And one of them is hiring chief diversity officers. And if the goal of hiring that person is to look better, like it's, you know, performative Mm -hmm. diversity Mm -hmm. saying 
well, we have a problem. So I'm going to pay someone a lot of money to sit in this role and give them no power. Then I think it's obviously it's not going to do much unless, you know, maybe certain amazing people can change minds and actually get the ball rolling, Mm -hmm. but it can, I think it can be really useful and have a huge positive impact on the organization. I just think it's more often than not. It's like, just like I like your example of the global, we need a chief diversity officer because like we suck at this. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and I don't want to do it right as CEO. So I can just hire someone else to do it. And I don't think it works that way. You know, it's, yeah. I, I've been amazed, honestly, that they didn't have one. Every time I see one of these announcements, Mike and Stephanie, it's like, you mean you didn't have a diversity officer before this? Yeah. How is that possible? Um, no. you yeah. know, given, given the objective benefits of a diverse workforce, yeah. right? And the objective metrics that weren't, we ain't there yet, right? right. Um, uh, in most of these companies. I, I, I've had the same reaction. It's like, wow, you mean you don't have one now? Yeah. Or, you know, the other big one that I've been, I've had that same reaction to companies bringing on a black board member. Yeah, exactly. And and this was the same when I think a couple of years ago, there's, you know, big shift in adding more women to corporate boards. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge announcement of the first woman added to this board. And you're like, what? They didn't have a woman on their board? How is that possible? Well, I I had that reaction when somebody told me when I accepted a job in 1996 as a chief communications officer for a telecom in Colorado for the old U.S. West, that somebody told me I was the first Latino to serve in that kind of a role with any company. I mean, some of these things, especially as time goes on, it's like kind of scratch your head first. Really? I know. (laughs) It's a... It's impressive or shocking. I'm not sure which, but I think with more push and regulation and laws around diversity on boards, I hope this will change and we can stop celebrating these firsts. And some some years ago, I made the comment when when I was a uh, MC for a program on diversity in the communications field. And I said, said, my biggest hope is that someday an event like this won't be needed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, now, Stephanie, I want to switch gears a little bit, but sort of in the same vein, take you back to 2017 and the Me Too movement, because I know you've done some some work in, in this area. And 2017 was, of course, the Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein. Oh, Harvey Weinstein really was the catalyst, I think. Roger Ailes at Fox. Yeah. In my crisis class, we study Uber. And oh, yeah. we Susan were, Fowler, right? yeah, just, um, you know, really difficult stories to read, but very instructive when you're thinking about corporate culture. And I, again, I know you've done some research in this area and in that time, has anything, you know, since 2017, since the, the genesis of the Me Too movement, has anything really changed with regard to sexual harassment of women in the workplace? Oh yeah. So this is funny. I actually did a study on this in 2016. Uh-huh. So before the Me Too movement, okay. we did this big, my PhD student and I, Jessica Kirk, did this big data collection on sexual harassment, really because you know, we were doing a very like exploratory study on women in the workplace. And this kept coming up. And 
she and I were like dumbfounded. We're like, women are sexually harassed in 2016. Like why, yeah. how could this be? Right. Right. Now that we're totally naive, but the level of the egregiousness of the behaviors were just like, for us, they were shocking. So we measured it and we, you know, did multiple studies and stuff. And then me too happened in 2017. And so we were actually able to go and redo our same data collection from actually some, some of the same people, which was kind of wow. cool in 2018. And there was a, a huge, like a significant decrease in sexual harassment. Those unwanted sexual attention and sexual coercion behaviors declined. There was also, this is kind of the bad side, an increase in gender harassment. So just like mm. negative attitudes toward women and interesting those microaggressions. It's like, if I, I can't harass you, I'm just going to be rude <laughs> to you. <laughs> But to wow. continue, we so we keep collecting data every two years, and two years after that is 2020. And then I can tell you, <laughs> COVID for all you know, many it's many many flaws and negative it's negative impacts on society has really decreased sexual harassment in the workplace and because people aren't together, Stephanie. Or I don't know. So the why I don't know. I think it's because people aren't together. I mean, yeah. it still happens. Like there, so we're continuing to collect data on it and, and trying to. <laughs> we were trying to look at what we thought when people go back to the workplace. So we wanted a before they go back to the workplace and then after they go back to the workplace, but that yeah. hasn't happened yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we just keep collecting data of people at home, but Is, are there, are there changes in attitude, Stephanie? Like it, as I remember it, let people like Les Moonves and Weinstein, this behavior was tolerated because they were successful in leading their companies in, in a financial sense, right? In a business sense. And, and that to me, that toleration of sexual harassment was obviously at the heart of the problem. And I'm just wondering if boards have really scrubbed that out. I think so. I think there's an effort to do that. I think maybe one of the, to me, one of the bigger changes is really in women's attitudes and willing, like they're realization that this is not their fault. This is not something about you. If Interesting. Yeah. All women are experiencing this, then you shouldn't feel guilty for the fact that you're experiencing it. And then of course, you know, you have enough corporate scandals that cost companies a lot yeah. of money. I think boards are stepping up. You know, I feel like there was some legislation yes, yeah. around this. It, like, can it, you sue for, I think it was yes. Uber, right? It was yeah, Uber, yeah. exactly. Uber. Yeah. yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Well, along those lines, and I know you've done some work on pay equality as well. Is that still a problem in 2020? You know, for example, I look at our <laughs> our industry, Stephanie, and and some some of the big agencies have gotten credit for re very recently saying we're going to pay the genders equally, and we're going to do a study inside our organization, and everybody says huzzah, huzzah. But again, it's this thing is like what. I know <laughs> I mean, you're paying people unequally based on, on gender. So where does that stand? Yeah, it still persists. It's, yeah, yeah. You know, I think the World Economic Forum says 170 years to oh, wipe out the pay gap at the rate we're currently going. And, and some yeah. of that, some of that isn't, isn't some of that because of how people are hired initially and then how do we look at promotions and then even the process by which, you know, if it, it's like, I know when I've looked at 
job opportunities, one of the common questions when you get down to brass tacks is, well, what do you currently make? Mm -hmm. And we've even had some municipalities and various places actually outlaw that, right? Yeah, and the same in the U.S., several states, actually quite a few have outlawed that pay history information you can't ask because it just continues to compound pay inequities. And why should it matter, right? This is a job. It should be, you should pay people based on compensable factors, like the, the work that they're doing. And so again, that we talk about unconscious bias. These are the kinds of things that just change the structure, right? So that is not asking about pay history, coming up with the actual pay for the job, because we know, for example, women who negotiate hard on salary are viewed negatively, sometimes have job offers rescinded. And then everyone says, mm. well, you didn't, you got less money because you didn't negotiate. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah I, I couldn't really, like, it's not, it's not the same. So I think that has a big impact, but even, you know, one of the things that economists often say about the pay gap is it's because many women do different jobs because the mm. nurse does a different job than the surgeon and women mm. are paid less. And even when you control for that, there's still a pay gap, but we also see that there's a lot of similar tasks, maybe not as much in, in nursing, but when you look at organizations, the tasks someone might do in one department and another department can be very similar, very, yeah. but paid very differently. Yeah, yeah. People get filtered exactly. into those roles. Yep. Uh, I, I saw it again, multi-business company like GE. I saw that happen a lot. Same job, same tasks, different pay. Right. Yeah. Mm. And of, of course that causes, like, it's bad for business. And right. those pay equity surveys, especially there's a lot more AI that can help do this, like mm -hmm. really look oh, for where the pay is going yeah. wrong and help companies make good decisions. I would say, it prop, I, I actually should calculate this out, but I think it costs less to pay people equally than it costs to lose talented women and women of color from the workforce. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of your lectures that was called to my attention, and I have two daughters with PhDs. I have one with an MBA. One of my daughters pointed me to this lecture that you had given, I guess it was at Purdue, where it was uh, a discussion around why aren't there more kick-ass women in academia? <laughs> um, I think that was the title or something. Sounds like to me. That. <laughs> I'd love for you to share, you know, your insights as to what it takes to have more kick-ass women in academia. Yeah. You know, I'd love to say like, in, when I look at companies, they're like, oh, the companies are doing these things. And then people ask, well, how is it done in academia? And I'm like, oh, it's just way worse. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it is tough because I don't think women have a ton of role models to go into mm -hmm. getting a PhD. I don't, how do you have two daughters that went and got PhDs? That's now, they're in very different fields. One's in physical therapy, but one is a scientist. One is got a PhD in computational chemistry. Oh, it's that's like, amazing. Phew. So I think that the role model issue is a, a huge one. And then even like, you know, there's all the data around girls when they're young, you know, girls in STEM and mm -hmm. how people might be encouraged to take one academic route versus another. I was just remembering this, we're cleaning out our house and I found my TI-85, 
anyone knows if anyone went to school in the oh, yeah, yeah. calculator Texas instrument. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that I used for calculus. And I was remembering going to college and Oh, nice. <laughs> Mike's holding yeah. up his calculator. Uh, yeah, I just ask Siri. Steph Siri Stephanie, really it's like any any time he gets a chance, he wants to remind us that he has an accounting <laughs> in the background. It's really sad. But go ahead. I'm uh, sorry. I think that's amazing. <laughs> but I remember going to college and I was going to take this Calc 2 class uh -huh. and the professor for the class asking me like on the first day of class, what's your major? And it was psychology. And he's like, why do you need to take Calc 2? Like you're done with math. I've like tested out of it from my high school and like stuff like that, right? Like, yeah. why wouldn't you, I love math. Why wouldn't you just encourage me to go yeah. to Calc 2 and then whatever's yeah. after that, Calc 3, I don't know. Yeah. So there's all of that. And then there's just so many structural things about academia that like the tenure clock, I, I think any academic would realize this, but for, you know, people who aren't in this field, you go through graduate school. Like when are you, when do you think you're done? with a PhD, like 30 probably yeah. for most yeah. fields. Yeah. And then you get seven years to go up for tenure. So from 30 to 37. And during that time, this is like prime child bearing uh -huh. right. years yeah. Yeah. for women. And so we lose a ton of women who are just maybe not willing to make those sacrifices. I don't know. Men, you know, I think men are statistically more likely to have partners who stay at home. Women are less likely to have that option. And just like fertility wise, I think men are a little, can last a little longer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that is really tough. And when you take time out of your career, you know, there's rules to help account for that. Like you can yeah. stop your tenure clock at a lot of universities, but yeah. it's not really true. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one one thing. Let's let's make this a little bit more personal. I, I think that first of all, a lot of our listeners probably don't realize your background. You mentioned briefly Mexican American background. Tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, as well as what prompted your interest in organizational psychology, and ultimately to your work today around diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So this is a really long story. So I'm half Mexican. I'm half white. I grew up pretty poor and outside of East LA and California. Neither of my parents went to college. And this, I think for me, I really am the kid who loved calculus. So I really wanted to pursue higher ed. And I was particularly interested in leadership, which I'm a little embarrassed to say is what I still study. And this is like 30 years later you think I would have a little more creativity <laughs> over that time or have it solved or something. But so I went on to do a degree in organizational psychology and then a PhD where I studied leadership. And in doing that research, consistently found mostly gender disparities mm -hmm. so that women with the same performance scores would not be entered into a high potential program because they didn't seem high potential. They didn't have executive presence or were paid less. Well, there's a good one, right? Yeah, Executive yeah. presence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even the world. I just started trying, like it wasn't intentional, I suppose. I actually feel like as one of the very few women, especially at the time um, in my field, didn't want to study something like gender. <laughs> I wanted to study as masculine of a you know mainstream topic as I could, which is leadership. Like if you think of you know, studying business leadership is like, you want to study CEOs, that's like very mainstream. Very, yes. Yeah, I'm a good statistician. So 
you can't analyze data if there's differential impacts for like say assertiveness is positively related to success for men and negatively or zero for women you can't just run those results right you have to account for those differences and so I tried and then it just like really made me mad (laughs) after doing it (laughs) long enough that I just started doing a little more and more research on that and at the time to be honest I thought I would figure it out and solve it clearly wrong it's like still a problem but that was the hope was I could figure that out and then go back to my very serious research on leadership and you know now in retrospect I think that was the most important work that I did and mm-hmm. with now as like a tenured professor I, I don't really care what people think so now I just <laughs> will dive fully now you do what you want <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, I want to talk about one piece of research of yours that caught my eye. As you can tell, I like to have fun in all things, including in the classroom. And and you did some research on the use of, by instructors, stories, jokes, video clips. And, And as a professor, your research set out to see whether such information helps or hinders learning. So I'm really, really nervous about your answer on this, given <laughs> the way I teach my classes. Does What's the answer to that question? Oh, does, I, it, yeah. does it help or hinder? Both. Yeah. So you think about seductive, <laughs> seductive details, right? Yeah. Like when, as teachers, faculty, we put in tiny tidbits of information that are supposed to make people interested and get their attention. And, and it can, and it improves affect and makes people feel good and energized Mm -hmm. to hear those little details but if it's not related to the main point it can distract learning and so if you can make if you can choose a detail that is not only interesting but is also on point like what you're trying to convey I think it would be good but a lot of times they're they're not like if you just put in little comics or I know I always talked about toxoplasma gandhi a cat parasite that causes people, it causes behavior change in humans and animals. And I'd always talk about this in class. And it's like the one question everyone would get right on the test. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cat parasite. And I'm like, I'm teaching organizational behavior. You know, <laughs> but they remember the seductive details, which tells you a lot about everything else we talk about, right? Exactly. Exactly. I, I, I have, I'm a bit of a history nerd and I attended by Zoom a, a lecture on a certain historical topic recently. And the guy began with the Bill O'Reilly, a joke about Bill O'Reilly from Fox News on when he, you know, they had the clip of him saying, you know, swearing and throwing his pen and say, I'll do it live, I'll do it live. And it was, uh, you know, famous for people who are in the media and and on the, and these were history nerds on buffs on this, this lecture. Nobody knew what he was talking about. I mean, it just, it just like took, you know, and put that cloud on top of it. So uh, I'm, I'm really interested. I, I don't know, Haley's been in one of my classes and maybe I'll yeah. talk to her about it afterwards. But uh, I'm also thinking about maybe putting my, turning my badge in, Mike. I don't know, it'd be- <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I wonder if it's different to in COVID teaching. Yeah, Like yes. I kind of feel like anything I can do to keep people awake class completely i'm with you i am with you it it is so so difficult and you know even in covid um you know the when i'm in the classroom i have a mask on 
and the students have a mask on and even the lack or the inability to see how people's faces react to what you say you know a smile or a smirk or whatever that connection just isn't there and so it's changed in a lot of ways but i'm with you when when you're doing it like this on zoom like we are today a little lighthearted storytelling i think is helpful so so just in closing many leaders talk about being supportive of diversity and inclusion and and yet few are seemingly making all that much progress other than Buy your book, which we want them to do, and we'll post <laughs> hire a link you. So that, so, so, so that people, or hire you, right? What words of advice would you give to a CEO or a chief HR officer to start making a real difference? Yeah, I would start with empathy. Try to get a better understanding of people's experiences. I believe most, I believe most people are really well-intentioned. And I don't think people are trying to be biased, especially around inclusion. I think all leaders would love to be inclusive. Like mm-hmm. I haven't yeah. yet met a leader who's like, no, I don't want to hear anyone's opinion. <laughs> I just want to make all decisions <laughs> unilaterally. Like this is great for business. I think they just need to understand other people's perspectives. And this is more true for like the middle manager than the CEO, but anyone I think could start with empathy. And then I would say, attack this like a business problem. collect data, set goals, create plans and strategies around it. And then you implement on it and you hold people accountable. This is amazing. It works, right? Like the meta-analysis on, which is like a study of all studies ever done on diversity initiatives says doing what I just said actually works and everything else kind of doesn't, right? They all work (laughs) in conjunction, like unconscious bias training is effective, more effective when paired with structural changes having a chief diversity officer, although I don't think anyone studied this, but would probably be more effective if allowed to make these structural changes. So especially for CEOs who are good at business, think of it like a business problem and attack it. Great, great. Thank you for joining us, Stephanie. Really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing your insights on some very important topics. Thank you, Stephanie. I thought we were gonna do this whole thing in Spanish though. Ah, that's the next hour. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Crux and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.